Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And today we're here with Mike Wolf. Mike, you've given us today. your blessing to call you Mike. That's great. Even though you've worn the judge hat and uh, the dean of the law school hat and many other hats. Guy who can't hold a job. <laughs> So uh, what are you up to right now? Well, I'm uh, failing my third retirement, and I'm working uh, part-time as a senior advisor to Wesley Bell, the prosecuting attorney of St. Louis County. What is your job duties there? Give advice. And when he asked me to do this job, I told him that I wanted to be judged by the standards of a major league baseball hitter. And that is, if I'm right one out of three times, I'm in the Hall of Fame. And how are you doing? I'm not in the Hall of Fame yet, but I'm close. (laughs) So our paths have crossed in a number of ways. We have. John and I both were your students back yes. at St. Louis U, yes. back, in the, back in the early 80s. We for were me. slightly younger then. We were. Yes. Then I think we, we ran across each other uh, when you were a, a, a judge on the Missouri Supreme Court. Yep. You were there for how many years? 13 years from two th- 1998 till 2011. Then you became dean of the law school, and John and I both teach as adjuncts at St. Louis yes. U, so we met, we, we were with you then, too. That's right. I didn't sign your paychecks, but I, I was okay with you being hired because you're both fabulous teachers. Well, All thank right. you. Yeah, thanks. Let me start out with some very general things. What is the thing that you most like about being an attorney? You know, I think the idea that you can help people, either individually as a client or, and I've worked in government and I've worked as a judge, sometimes that affects a lot of people. And I always hope that the decisions that we make are making life better for people. That's a goal. I grew up in circumstances that were modest at best, benefited from getting a scholarship to go to college. And back when I went back to Minnesota to go to law school, I, that was back before the, my generation messed up the whole economic system by making tuition unaffordable. But I went to law school for, I think, about a little over $100 a quarter as a wow. in-state resident. And so I've always wanted to have the ability to, to have people have those kinds of opportunities. And I think being a lawyer, you can affect public policy sometimes. You can affect individual lives sometimes. And that's very important. Well, we have you here for this podcast to talk about persuasion. And this seems like a topic we could talk about for months. So this, this is really unfair to try to do this in a short session. But, but you were good at it. You persuaded me to be here to talk about it. I, I did. <laughs> How did you do that, Eric? Yeah. <laughs> and it was without money, too, I might add. <laughs> so uh, persuasion seems to me, and I know John and I have talked about this, it seems like it's around the corner every time you practice law in any aspect of it, whether it be persuading a judge or a juror or persuading your employees or persuading your partners about what to do in your law firm. It seems like at the cornerstone, if you're not good at persuading, you're not going to be a lawyer. But what- you got to leave in one more. You got to persuade your client sometimes that what you're suggesting is the right thing for him or her to do. But I think that persuasion starts with a deep sense of empathy. And that is being able to put yourself in the shoes of another, see the world through some other person's eyes. If you're arguing a case before a judge, what does that judge want to know? What are her needs? What what does she need to know to make a good decision? How does that fit into things? I think juries sense about 
whether the lawyers that are appearing before them understand them and their need for information because they're there basically as volunteers. I know they get paid $18 or something a day, but, but they're essentially volunteers. And they're good citizens for showing up and doing that duty. And they want to do the right thing. And so I think that the idea that, that we can give them information that will help them do the right thing for our clients, of course. I think what it all boils down to is you need to develop a relationship. You need to develop trust with the, the jury. Absolutely. If, if a person trusts you and you're way more, I mean, think about this. How in the world are you ever going to convince anybody of anything if they don't trust you? you got to get their trust first, I think. That's absolutely right. And you can't lose it by, having, by putting on a witness or your own client who lies to them. Because they're pretty good sometimes at figuring out who the phonies are, who, what, whether somebody's telling the truth. They're not, they're not 100% good. But they're sincerely trying to figure out what the truth is. Because a trial is, after all, a search for truth. That's the theory. Sometimes it doesn't necessarily work out precisely that way, but I think that, that, that juries really try to get there. I think also you have to believe in what you're saying. If you don't believe in the case yourself, if you don't believe in your client's case, I think it's a heavy lift. I mean, how, how, you, yeah. how are you going to convince anybody of something that you don't fully believe in? There's an interesting point about that because people who practice criminal law oftentimes are in a position of representing somebody that, that they believe did something bad, did something wrong. And you might have a, just a horrible person that you're representing. And when I was teaching trial advocacy, I would tell students now exactly what John just said. You have to believe. So what is it that you're going to believe? You don't necessarily believe what this guy is saying uh, or who he is, but you believe in the system. And so you have to sort of sit in a dark room by yourself for about five minutes and persuade yourself that you really believe in the system, that you really believe that you're going to make the prosecution prove that case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's how the system works, and it's profoundly important. Even if this person that you happen to be representing might not be the most attractive human being. And you, by the way, should do everything you can to make him or her an attractive person. I remember years ago when I first came to St. Louis University, the great criminal defense lawyer, Charles Shaw, was quoted by some older lawyers about representing people. And one of the things that he said he did was that, and I never saw him try a case, but he was very good at it. He was very good in the courtroom, was that he would sit down the night before a final argument and ask his client, tomorrow I'm going to give a final argument in your case. What is it that you want me to tell this jury about you? And he would pay really close attention to that and make a few notes. And in the course of his final argument, he would come over, he'd be walking around, as he can in state court, federal courts are a little bit more constricted about that, and he would put his hands on the fellow's shoulders and look at the jury and talk to them about him, talk to him about who this person is and, and all of that, because he was transferring the goodwill that he had brought into the courtroom and the trust that he had built up with the jury, transferring it directly and as closely as he could to his client. What he also said, by the way, was that oftentimes the jury may find your client guilty, but when he's down in the penitentiary, 
he's going to tell everybody down there that he had the very best lawyer in the state of Missouri. <laughs> and so it's not bad advertising. <laughs> this is an interesting intersection of persuasion and trust. And I, yes. I hadn't really thought of those two being two sides of the same coin. I look for opportunities to make them trust me, to make the jurors trust me. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've done before in, in, in Vordire, and I try to do it early on, is I'll tell the jury, look, we have to prove our case. And if we don't do that, if I don't do my job and prove the case, it's okay to hold against us. It's okay to not give us a verdict. And the other thing you can't do is you can't stand up and tell them, you've got to do this. Yes. Oh, you can't can't, can't shove it down their throat. First thing they're going to say is, what do you mean? Yeah. (laughs) I'm the one who gets to decide. (laughs) In my trial, the trial ed course that I teach, I tell the students that you got to be careful when you're so positive about anything in a case Mm -hmm. in whatever stage of the case you're in close or opening because if you say something like who could ever believe that well chances are half of those people do (laughs) (laughs) you start seeing hands go up you know you're in trouble (laughs) (laughs) might might want to soften a little bit yeah even when you're trying to get somebody off for cause in vor dire Mm -hmm. the jury they know what's going on i think as a group collectively they're, they're smarter than any person we'll ever meet that's right. And you know, they know that you're not trying to game the rest of them. Right, right. Because they not only are listening to you, they're listening to each other and paying attention. And actually, they're also paying attention to how you treat the other people that you're talking to. Because maybe you haven't talked to them yet. So they're wary about you. So they want to see how you're doing, right? Sure. I tell the, told students that, and I've said it many times, that maybe one of the things that might happen to you that maybe not so good is that if you win your first two or three cases that you ever tried, because what you think is everything you did was right. Because I think you learn a lot more from cases that you lose. Because to your point, it's on me. And you really think about it mm-hmm. and you retry that case over and over again. What if I had done this? What if I had said this? What if I had said that? So you're basically kind of teaching yourself. And I really considered that at some point in my career, I considered myself a pretty well-educated lawyer. I'm thinking about what John just said about trying to quickly gain the trust of jurors. And there's no law school course called this, but it's really a critical thing to learn how to become a trusted person in the room quickly. Mm -hmm. I want the judge, when the judge has a question, I want the judge to look at me after a few rounds Mm -hmm. where they thought, well, you seem to know what your case is all about. And maybe I gave on a couple points where the other side had a good point. I said, well, I agree with that. But there's a trick to this. And it's not insincere. It's a real effort to say, here's who I am, but to do it somewhat quickly because your, your window is small. And when you're arguing to a judge, when you're, making a, when you're making a presentation, say on a motion, many times you're talking about law. And I was a judge on the Supreme Court of Missouri, and we were always talking about legal points. We never got into deciding facts. That really wasn't our job. But if you, you, you know a real lawyer, when there's a case that is not helpful to her and she brings it up and tells you why this case shouldn't be applied in this situation that rather than just ignoring it or not dealing with it so i think that judges assess you by the candor that you show to them i mean the good judges that really understand the process we're talking about credibility and it's so important i think it's even more important in front of a judge Mm -hmm. because unlike a jury you may appear in front of that judge a dozen times or two dozen times through in, in the course of your career. Lie to him once. Right, right. And 
you'll, you won't have a good reception for the rest of your career. That's a bad. And the judges, I know from talking to judges, talk mm-hmm. to the other judges. If, of course uh, they do. Whatever your reputation is in front of one judge, that everybody in that building knows it. Everybody in that building knows it. When we talk about things that you can do to establish your credibility in front of a judge, there's a story I love telling. Both of you know George Fitzsimmons. Yep. Wonderful man, wonderful attorney. And I worked side by side with George for 10 years as a young lawyer. Most of what I learned, most of what I know today, I learned from George. Mm-hmm. And I was working for George for about a month, new lawyer. And he had a case going, we had a case going out to trial in federal court. And George came in and asked me to do the pretrial and didn't give me a lot of guidance. And I went on and drafted, I think, 15 or 20 motions in limine, and the other side had a dozen or so motions, and I drafted them all and put them on his desk, and I didn't hear anything from George. We went ahead and filed them. We went up to the pretrial to argue, and I was interested in what George thought of my motions. I spent a lot of time on them. I think there were 19 or 20 of them, and the federal judge said, Mr. Fitzsimmons, do you have any motions? George looked at him and said, no, Your Honor, we don't have any. (laughs) And I thought, wow, what the heck just happened? And so then we started going through the defense motions and one after another, and I had responded at length, written briefs on, on all of these. George said, no, nah, don't have a problem with number one. No, nah, not number two. When we got to number eight, George said, now that one we have a problem with. And that was the only motion that could have been case dispositive for us. Mm-hmm. And we won that, and I think in large part, because the judge and everybody in that room knew, now this is important. And right. this guy doesn't argue about things that are frivolous or small. This is an important issue. There was a case that, uh, in fact, I think it might have been the last case that George was trying when he was a defense lawyer for the, the original Fitzsimmons firm out in the county. So it was a long time ago. And my friend and I were trying on the plaintiff side. He was on the defense side. And the guy I was working with was a very good lawyer. In three days of trial, we settled, I think, on the fourth day. In three days of trial, I think there were two objections. Wow. The whole time. George, George might have objected once. I think we might have objected once, and that was it. Because what you're really discerning is, well, is this going to hurt me? Oh, can I get around this somehow? Yeah. It's probably better. I mean, because if you sit there and just object, 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 the jury's going to think you're trying to hide something. And if you're the plaintiff... You shouldn't be hiding things. Right. And if you're the defense in a civil case, you really shouldn't be hiding things. Because, you know, especially in today's world, where they're hearing about all these hidden things that corporations are hiding, they don't need to have one more thing hidden from them. And it highlights the issue also. It does. Draws the jury's attention to it. Especially if you get overruled. Or or maybe sustained and say, well, the jury will disregard that. That might be the one thing the jury remembers. <laughs> There's a saying I learned it, I think, back being a law school student. If you have the law, pound the law. If you don't have the law, pound the facts. If you don't have the facts, pound the table. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And persuasion is not necessarily what you would recognize as persuasion. So when, when I think of persuasion at first glance, it would be making the legal arguments of a case. But if when I was with various firms in my past... If I was given a choice between writing the facts on an appellate brief or writing the law or the legal arguments, I would always pick the facts. Always. Absolutely. And even though it's supposed to be an even-handed statement of facts, there's a way to tell the story. No question that, that about can, it. I, I figure you could win the case on the facts without ever hearing the first bit of and, the law. And we are, after all, storytellers. Now, they better be truthful stories, but we are storytellers. 
Can we go back to uh, narrative just a bit more? Yeah. There's a lot of writing these days about narrative and the importance. Yeah. Just looking for your general thoughts on that. How, how important is it to have a coherent story that rings true based upon the evidence that you can produce? I think that narrative is important. I think it's important to have a theme. I think it's important to get right to it. A lot of people kind of dance around a little bit when they're talking about, well, we're going to do this now, we're going to do this and this and this. My, my, my attitude is, well, let's just get right to it. And sometimes it helps to start with a question, a question that you have spent hours thinking about, how can I ask this question in a way that they got to answer it my way, right? And then the narrative might follow from that. Now, it might not be that I would start it with a question, but I would have that question as sort of the, the organizing principle of what my story is going to be, because I want them to answer that question. Maybe that doesn't apply in all situations, but it strikes me that, that you want the person who's reading this or who's listening to you to come to the right answer. I've always thought whether you're writing a brief or talking to a jury, you have to tell a story that wins their heart first. Yes. And then you capture their heart, then their mind. And if the first two or three sentences out of your mouth, if the jury listens to what you're saying and they're like, yeah, that just doesn't sound right, that's just not fair, you want them very quickly to listen to what you're saying and come to the conclusion, you know, that's not right, that, that shouldn't have happened or your client should win. And if you can do that, everything else is easy because everything else that they hear through that course of that trial is going to be filtered through that perception that they've already made that you should win the case or what the defendant did was wrong. Yeah. I, I think it's so important, you know, heart and mind. So let me throw a hypothetical at you. Brand new hire at your law firm. You're, you run a law firm. Here comes uh, someone who's been out of law school for a couple months. They have their license. They're going to go argue their first motion. And they say, how do I do this? What, what basic guidance might you offer that person? I think I would tell them some of the things that we've been talking about, and that is this motion that you're arguing has a point. You want to make a point. You want to exclude some evidence. You want summary judgment, which is a, a decision without having to put on a trial or whatever. So I would prepare that central question that you're going to address but at the, other, the other thing I would do is I would tell them to sit in a dark room for about 10 minutes or maybe a half hour and think of all of the questions that the judge could ask you to see if you can answer those questions. I had an experience like that uh, in a case that I argued in the Eighth Circuit in the 1970s. And it was a case that I had brought on behalf of a a young woman, and we used her initials because she wanted to be able to get access, I think she was 16 years old, to birth control without getting her parents' consent. And the basic theory of my case was, well, if a 16-year-old can get an abortion without a parental consent, why would we keep her from contraception? The judge wasn't wanting to do anything with us, and so he said... I want to have a hearing and a point because she needs a guardian ad litem or a plaintiff. And so we're going to have a hearing about this. You know, and I said, well, there's other appropriate people who can stand in adults, but not her parents because she and her parents, obviously, that wasn't going to go well for her. So he ordered us to notify the parents of the hearing on whether wow. he would appoint 
I said, Your Honor, with all due respect, I can't obey that order. I'm going to have to stand on our pleadings, and I know you're, you're free to dismiss this case, but that'll preserve the point because I'll have to appeal. He said, okay. You won't notify him? You're dismissed. And I waited several months, and the case came down. It was two to one in our favor, and the opinion was written by uh, Judge William Webster, who later became head of the FBI and the CIA, a fine St. Louis judge. And there was a dissent from somebody who just thought that the trial judge was right about that. I thought, well, somehow we, we got through this. That's such a confidence builder for a young lawyer, older lawyer, being prepared. There's nothing better for your confidence in front of the jury, in front of the judge, and being prepared. Preparation. It's the great equalizer. It is. It's, it's the and, great equalizer. And you, really, really you really have to think about what the other side's going to say. What are they going to say? We always, we, you know, when you take a client, take on a client's case, you know your client's right. You persuade yourself that the client's right, don't you? Yes. You know? Then you yes. have to sit down every once in a while and say, well, what are they going to say about this? Can't all be one-sided. We're in an era of digital natives. There's a term that refers to the young people who've grown up with computers every day in their life, mm-hmm. entering the profession in greater numbers compared to those of us around the table, we're, we're called digital immigrants. <laughs> Is that have, right? Yeah, it's, like it's, that. A, it's a common di- distinction made. That makes me think th- there's all this technology, all, you know, new ways to present a case. There's multimedia. How does that change? Do, do you have a reaction to that, like bringing more videos, uh, PowerPoints, uh, that kind of thing into the courtroom? There's two things going on right now. One is I think we have more effective tools for trying cases. And we have fewer and fewer trials. I think that's a bad thing for our business, for our, for the, for our profession, because I think it's better when there's more trials. I think we have a much better sense of how to resolve matters, how to settle matters if we have pretty active trial. I mean, I was happy to have been a law clerk in the federal court back when judges tried a lot of cases. Now it seems to me that judges uh, in many courts are managing litigation. It's all motion practice. Sometimes the motion practice isn't even in front of the judge. It's just all submitted in, in written things. And I think we lose some of that, that human piece about it. So back, you know, when I was in more active in, when I was active in trial work, we had 30 by 40 blow-ups. Remember those? Yes. You know, those oh, those yeah. uh, foam board things. Oh, rolling them in on the <laughs> cart. And, Absolutely. Yeah. You'd come into the courtroom. You'd have maybe 50 or 60 of those things. Now you can have a computer and it can have a few hundred. Now you have to yes. figure out, well, which 60 do I use? But they're cheap and you can use them. They're the, and the jurors are used to seeing things on a screen. That's, That's, that is true. That is true. When I, I tell the younger lawyers here, it's attention. It's a, you know, everybody has a short attention span now. Mm-hmm. And I said the only difference between what you're doing in front of a jury and people watching, sitting at home watching TV is they've got a channel changer. <laughs> That's right. And, and sometimes they're sitting it's watching it's you yes, and they wish yeah. they had one. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, and they, and they can tune you out. Right. Mm-hmm. right. You, that you was my it. point. So that just puts so much more pressure on a trial attorney to, yes, keep, to keep the case moving, mm-hmm. to get rid of everything that doesn't need to be there. Well, one of the things that we teach in, in, in legal education, I make this point, because when I teach first-year classes, and I, and I did that uh, as recently as this past semester, we make people, from the day they start law school, get to the point, because we have them brief cases. We ask them to take a 10-page or 20-page legal opinion 
and distill it down to a few points that really does that. And that means that you're excluding a whole lot of stuff, irrelevant stuff, because you're really getting to the point. What happens to people in the course of a good legal education is that you start getting impatient with your friends and relatives and loved ones who are not lawyers <laughs> because they are little bundles of irrelevancy. You'll say, what did you do today? And they'll start talking about, no, 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 no. And what you're really, you're sitting there agitated and you're thinking, would this person come to the point? Right? Yeah. You know, so <laughs> you, have to, you have to give up some of that. Right that focus on relevance and get it back to being a human being. Judge, this was fun. I it really is. enjoyed it's it. It's really been I, fun. I, I really enjoyed it. These are two of the best lawyers I know, and thank you for having me. I really do. Thank Judge, you. thanks again for being All right. here. All right. Yeah, that's been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And we'll see you next time. John and Eric would like to hear from you. They invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com.